Hey guys, welcome to the Bitcoin Fortress podcast, helping you increase your financial freedom. This is episode 48, recorded here on January 22nd, 2023. This podcast is for entertainment only and is not investing advice. So as always, please do your own homework. Okay, well, we'll start out with a market update outlook, and then we'll get into some Bitcoin news, uh, selection of interesting articles from the week, uh, some directly related to Bitcoin, others not, but uh, I think all very interesting stuff. So diving right in here, stocks clawed back some of this week's losses in a broad-based rally Friday that ended the week on an upbeat note. Tech-related stocks led the way, with Netflix surging 8.5% after gaining more subscribers than expected in its latest quarter, even as the company missed earnings estimates. And Alphabet adding more than 5% after Google announced plans to cut 12,000 employees. Hmm. U.S. Treasuries yields rose Friday with two- and ten-year bonds extending a rise from four-month lows at midweek, but still posted a third straight weekly decline as investors weighed mixed signals on the economy. The NASDAQ was the top performing index for the week, adding half a percent in its third positive week in a row, while the S&P 500 edged 0.6% lower, and the Dow Jones average closed the week down 2.7%, both breaking two-week winning streaks. Earnings reports will dominate the conversation around stocks next week with Tesla... Microsoft, Visa, MasterCard, Johnson & Johnson, and Boeing, some of the heavyweights due to report. Federal Reserve speakers will be in a blackout period ahead of the February FOMC meeting, but economic reports will still pour in. Updates on the S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Index, new home sales, durable goods orders, and consumer sentiment could reinforce the expectation for a recession in the U.S., and set the table for a 25-point rate increase from the Fed instead of a 50-point hike. Okay, moving on to the Bitcoin news. Uh, First article here is from Bitcoin.com. was posted today, and the title is Morgan Stanley CEO says inflation has peaked and China has made a major pivot. The chairman and CEO of Global Investment Bank, Morgan Stanley, James Gorman, discussed the U.S. economy and China's relationship with the U.S. in an interview with CNBC Thursday in Davos. Two things have changed recently that really matter, he began, noting that the first concerns inflation, while the second concerns China's recent pivot economically. The inflation numbers are better, the Morgan Stanley chief said, emphasizing Clearly, inflation peaked. That's no longer a question. It's a fact. He added that the question is, can the Federal Reserve get it to its 2% inflation target, and how hard will they try to get to 2% versus stabilizing around 3 or 4%? Regarding the Fed hiking interest rates, Gorman pointed out, we were on a 75 basis point track, then we quickly moved to 50. At the next FOMC meeting, He expects the Fed to increase rates by 25 basis points, stating 
I could see them doing 25, followed by 25, followed by a pause. I mean, that's not implausible. Gorman explained that another important change that has happened recently concerns China. He described the second thing that happened is China has made a major, major pivot. Now the focus was on the reopening, which was obviously critical. The recent pivot economically, the relationship thawing with the U.S., the meeting with the vice premier and Secretary Yellen, this is a big deal, the Morgan Stanley CEO continued. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen met with China's vice premier Liu He on Wednesday as part of efforts to deepen communication and work together to address global challenges. The Treasury explained last week, in November last year, President Joe Biden and President Xi also met in Bali and agreed to empower senior officials to engage in these issues, the Treasury further noted. Under President Xi's mantra of common prosperity, there are two ways to achieve that, Gorman detailed, concluding, one is by redistribution of existing prosperity, so everyone gets a piece of the pie. The other is by growing the pie, so everyone gets a piece of the pie. They have pivoted, I think, from the former to the latter. That is good news for global growth. Uh, so while inflation has clearly peaked, uh, certainly uh, as has happened in past episodes of inflation, if you go back to the 70s or even the 1940s, it does tend to come in waves. So there's certainly a school of thought that says the first wave might be over, but the next wave uh, might be coming. And certainly uh, a pause in rates or even a decrease in, in interest rates could, could trigger that. So that's something to be mindful of. Um, and obviously investors have, have actually kind of switched up and now are thinking soft landing or you know recession not happening until later and so that's why markets have sort of been rallying lately so it'll be interesting to see uh what continues to happen here uh china certainly is a big story because they uh, drive a lot of demand for commodities oil things like that and that's probably part of the reason why a lot of people think oil is going back up or it's at least going to hang around where it's at currently around 80 bucks a barrel um, a lot of people are saying it's going to head up to 100 bucks uh, this year um, so uh, very interesting to see what's happening and also what the fed will do um, they're really in a bind because the u.s can't really handle high interest rates for too long um, but then they also want to try to at least appear like they're fighting inflation, even though, you know, the, the numbers that are uh, officially published have been manipulated to the point where um, they're not really representing what the real rate of inflation is, but they are important nonetheless, at least as a directional indicator for which way inflation is heading. And Bitcoin has certainly benefited from, uh, the anticipation of lower or at least not interest rates not continuing to rise and higher liquidity and also kind of a risk on mood uh, as evidenced by the nasdaq uh, performing you know well over the last three weeks you know com certainly compared to to some of the other indices uh, but bitcoin of course is um, leading the charge uh, in terms of uh, 
outperforming everything else right now, uh, albeit from pretty low levels. <laughs> I think it got down to 16,000 or something at the bottom, 15, 16,000. Okay, next article is from Cointelegraph. This was published January 20th. Uh, crypto lender Genesis files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Uh, cryptocurrency lender Genesis has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the Southern District of New York. The firm has estimated liabilities of one to 10 billion and assets in the same range, according to the January 19th filing. Earlier reports claimed the company had been considering filing for bankruptcy protection if it was unable to raise capital to stem its liquidity crisis. In a January 19th press release, Genesis said it had been engaged in discussions with its advisors to its creditors and corporate parent digital currency group to evaluate the most effective path to preserve assets and move the business forward. Genesis has now commenced a court-supervised restructuring process to further advance these discussions. The company's Chapter 11 plan sees it contemplating a dual-track process pursuing a sale, capital raise, and or an equitization transaction that would apparently enable the business to emerge under new ownership. Um, the derivative spot trading broker-dealer and custody businesses of Genesis are not part of the Chapter 11 proceedings and will continue operations according to the firm. It also claimed to have more than $150 million in cash on hand that it believes will provide ample liquidity to support its ongoing business operations and facilitate the restructuring process. The restructuring process will be led by an independent special committee of the company's board of directors, and Genesis says the process is aimed at providing an optimal outcome for Genesis clients and Gemini Earn users. The firm suspended withdrawals from its platform in November 2022, mid-market turbulence caused by the collapse of FTX. The move impacted users of Gemini Earn, a yield-bearing product for users of the Gemini cryptocurrency exchange managed by Genesis. Gemini co-founder Cameron Winklevoss tweeted, the bankruptcy is a crucial step toward Gemini users being able to recover their assets but claimed DCG and its CEO, Barry Silbert, continue to refuse to offer creditors a fair deal and threaten to file a lawsuit unless Barry and DCG come to their senses. Both Genesis and Gemini are facing charges from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission for allegedly offering unregistered securities through the EARN program. Fears are mounting over Genesis' parent company, DCG, as it may have to sell part of its 500 million venture capital portfolio to try to offset Genesis' liabilities. On January 17th, DCG halted dividend payments in a move aimed at reducing operating expenses and preserving liquidity. The sale of its crypto media outlet Coindesk is also reportedly being weighed, which could net DCG $200 million. Um, so what was interesting about this was when the news broke initially, I think Bitcoin uh, dropped, but then it recovered and continued on its rally. So I think the uh, assumption here is that this plan doesn't really involve liquidating um, all the assets. And, and frankly, what we've seen with some of the other failures, most notably FTX, is that uh, they were all short Bitcoin and they don't actually own any Bitcoins and uh, uh, or they had paper Bitcoins, not real 
bitcoins and so therefore um there's nothing to sell nothing to liquidate anymore um so uh i think that's good news even though you know as there continues to be turmoil in the industry that tends to 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 dampen the enthusiasm for for bitcoin but i think uh this was a pretty good outcome and uh, even you know when they start talking about digital asset or uh, uh D dcg potentially uh, they they also own the grayscale um uh, company which has you know grayscale bitcoin trust that asset is very valuable um you know there's a two percent management fee on it it's the only way in the u.s to to buy uh physical bitcoin um in like a brokerage account uh, it is trading at a huge discount um, to the actual physical Bitcoin it holds. Uh, some say that's an opportunity. Others say that's just reflecting the uncertainty of what could happen to the sponsor. But I think a lot of people think that if that were offered for sale, that you know BlackRock or Fidelity or Vanguard, somebody would come in and buy it um, and, and would not need to liquidate the uh the bitcoins that are that are actually held by it because it's owned by by investors and uh at some point down down the road it could potentially get converted into an etf once the sec sees its way to prove those in the us and that would probably erase the discount you know overnight so uh i think generally speaking that that this bankruptcy probably cleared up some some uncertainties and um, really hasn't had much of an impact on the price of Bitcoin, which is a good thing. Saw this in CNBC. Uh, this was posted uh, yesterday. Thought it was interesting. X Genesis execs claim they raised millions for crypto hedge fund, just as former company neared bankruptcy. Just weeks before crypto lender Genesis filed for bankruptcy, three former employees of the company claimed they'd secured millions of dollars for a new crypto hedge fund, according to correspondence viewed by CNBC. Matt Balanswag, who left Genesis in September after more than five years at the firm, sent a message to prospective investors in mid-December regarding a fund he was starting called Hunting Hill Digital. Balanswag said he had already secured two and a half million from Bessemer Venture Partners at a 30 million post money valuation and wrote in the message that he and his partners were in the process of raising another five million. Bessemer told CNBC in an email that they are not an investor in Hunting Hill Digital. The fund's flagship product would go live in the first quarter of 2023, the message said. Other partners in the fund would include Martin Garcia, who spent more than six years at Genesis and Reed Werbit, Genesis' former head of trading, the message said. Werbit, Garcia, and Balenswag all left Genesis around the same time in 2022. Genesis, which is owned by Barry Silvert's Digital Currency Group, filed for bankruptcy protection on Thursday, latest casualty in the industry contagion caused by the collapse of crypto exchange FTX in November. In its bankruptcy filing, Genesis listed over 100,000 creditors with aggregate liabilities ranging from $1.2 billion to $11 billion. Balanswag was named in legal filings surrounding the implosion of Genesis Lending Book. Gemini, a crypto exchange and major Genesis client, accused Balanswag of falsely reassuring Gemini in July 
that Genesis was financially stable. Gemini claimed that Balanswag told its representatives that Genesis had capital to operate for the long term, according to court filings. Balanswag did not respond to a request for comment on the allegations made against him by Gemini or his raise, recent capital raise. Balanswag spent his final nine months at Genesis as managing director and co-head of trading and lending. The ex-Genesis employees teamed up with Adam Gurin from hedge fund Hunting Hill, Balanswag said. Hunting Hill is a $718 million hedge fund, which launched in 2010 and moved into digital asset investing in 2020 with a crypto opportunities fund. Hunting Hill did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Balanswag pitched the flagship product as an alpha multi-strat delta neutral or a fund specializing in multi-strategy, low-risk, high-return investments. He added that the trio would also launch two other beta products, including a top 25 index and a DeFi beta. Think you'd be a valuable early partner, Balanswag said in his pitch. Balanswag isn't the only Genesis alum seeking to launch a fund. Roshan Patel, a former vice president of Genesis who left the company in March after almost four years, was raising cash for a new fund in mid-2022. CNBC reached out to Garcia, Werbit, and Patel for comment on their raises, but did not immediately hear back. So what's interesting is that uh, the, the, uh, the lure of easy money for these venture capitalists uh, in the crypto space is, is still very much there. Um, Lynn Alden, someone who I follow and highly recommend you follow as well, um, writes a nice monthly uh, newsletter that's free, uh, also has a paid newsletter. Uh, but she uh, has been on a couple podcasts lately and has talked about um, how venture capital uh traditionally they invest in startups and when you invest in a startup you have to be patient you have to put money in and a lot of times you have to wait five to seven years for the business to mature to a point where um, either it gets acquired or it can go public and then you know as the investor you can get your return and you know of course there's a high risk that they go out of business so you could lose all your money and there's also uh, a risk that, or, you know, the, the upside potential is it could go 10x or whatever. So you make a lot of money. Uh, with crypto, um, and especially with the ability to issue tokens, um, uh, venture capitalists can significantly reduce the amount of time it takes for them to monetize their investments. So, for example, they can invest in a cryptocurrency venture, they'll issue tokens to themselves. Uh, then they sell them to the public uh, to establish a market cap. And then once that gets listed on an exchange, the market cap starts to grow. It allows them to sell the tokens that they're issued to recover their initial investment and then you know, make their returns. And they don't really have to wait for the business uh, to be successful or not. They can, they can get a very fast exit um, on the backs of, of retail. And since, and I've talked about this before, since most crypto is um it you know if it's not an outright fraud or ponzi scheme which there, we've had those certainly it's it's just replicating things that exist already in the physical world um and it's really not making anything better the only thing that's really improving things is bitcoin and so uh but you know and the 
I'm sure there'll be more regulation, uh, but uh, and that will probably make it a little harder for them to make money, uh, especially if people have to read disclosures and, and these things have to be filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission before tokens can be issued, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there's still clearly money to be made here as evidenced by what these guys are up to. Um, I don't think that it's going away anytime soon. And uh, certainly if you're an investor in the, either in these deals or, or trying to buy other coins besides Bitcoin, um, you definitely have to be careful. Um, so moving along, uh, next article here is from Cointelegraph. This was posted uh, or updated today. Kind of an interesting piece um, that broke, I guess, I think it was yesterday. Uh, Binance's SWIFT banking partner set to ban U.S. dollar transfers before 100K, below 100K. Uh, and, of course, I saw some tweets about this saying, uh, you know, good luck. You're not going to be able to sell your coins, blah, blah, blah. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but anyway, this is the article. Binance has informed its retail customer base of a potential incoming service disruption that may halt on and off ramp bank payment transfers. The service disruption will impact users of US dollar held bank accounts that are looking to buy or sell cryptocurrencies for less than $100,000 via the SWIFT payment system. The disruption will take effect on February 1st. Binance announced the news to its Binanceans, because <laughs> that's what they call people who, who have an account with Binance, by email on January 21st, stressing that they're now actively seeking a new SWIFT US dollar partner to avoid service disruptions for future bank payment transfers. The cryptocurrency exchange added that this was the banking partner's decision. So that's important. It wasn't like the US government saying no, no, no. Uh, and that Binance wouldn't be the only trading platform impacted by the change. Uh, this is the case for all of their crypto exchange clients, please be advised that until we're able to find an alternative solution, you may not be able to use your bank account to buy or sell crypto with US dollars via SWIFT with a value of less than $100,000 after February 1st, 2023. Binance did, however, stress that customers would still be able to use their credit or debit card to buy or sell cryptocurrencies and that payments to or from third-party exchanges would still be processed. The cryptocurrency exchange added that SWIFT-based transfers would remain in operation for non-US dollar bank transfers, such as the Euro. Binance confirmed the change wouldn't impact its corporate accounts. The banking partner involved is Signature Bank, according to a January 21st report by Bloomberg. The bank set the minimum transaction limit of $100,000 in an effort to decrease its exposure to the digital asset market, Bloomberg explained. While Payment service disruption wasn't Binance's decision. The trading platform has suspended transfers in recent times. Binance recently imposed a temporary suspension on Solana-based USDT and USDC deposits on November 17th, while the exchange also temporarily suspended Ether and wrapped Ether deposits and withdrawals for about 10 days ahead of the Ethereum merge. So again, I saw this on Twitter, you know, People were pumping it up like it was some big deal. Uh, and, you know, it's one bank and it's 
Binance, and um, you can't necessarily conclude that this is going to, you know, ripple through every single bank. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, through the entire system. But of course, you know, uh, if you're into Bitcoin, you're always thinking about alternatives and what could happen if you couldn't buy Bitcoin through, say, a traditional channel like a bank. And um, the next article here I'm going to talk about is peer-to-peer, which actually I was listening to a podcast last week uh, uh, with a guy who was talking about Paxful is the name of the peer-to-peer exchange. And he's primarily... um, in the global south, you know, in uh, emerging markets, and um, uh, is basically put together a website that cobbles together um, people that want to buy cryptocurrencies and people that want to sell them, mostly Bitcoin. Um, I do think he does handle um, stable coins and I think Ethereum. I think he actually dropped Ethereum, so I think it's just Bitcoin now only, and and maybe stable coins, but. Uh, they've cobbled together, you know, pretty much any kind of payment method you could think of, uh, including gift cards, um, bank accounts, um, PayPal, Cash App, um, all these different payment methods uh, that people can use to to basically buy and sell crypto Bitcoin primarily from from each other. Um, And so uh, there are other alternatives. And so if, you know, the, we'll call it the, the, the U.S. bank fiat on-ramp or off-ramp closes, uh, there are still other ways to buy Bitcoin. And there's certainly no, nothing stopping you from using Bitcoin in transactions, um, you know, again, using Lightning Network or direct payments to individuals. So I think that's an important thing to remember whenever this kind of stuff comes across is that, uh, you know, uh, and, and certainly nothing like that has happened, but, you know, it could happen in the future. And so, um, if you want to continue your, to, you know, dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin and you want to, um, have that Bitcoin available, if you need to borrow against it or spend it, um, uh, it's important to keep these things in mind. So as I mentioned, the next article, this one here is from, uh, Bitcoin magazine. Um, this was posted on January 20th. It's called Mainstream Bitcoin Exchanges Have Obscured the Value of Private P2P Alternatives. And again, this is an opinion piece um, by a guy named Okada, who's a mechanical engineer and contributor to peer-to-peer Bitcoin exchange RoboSats. Buying your first Bitcoin has dramatically changed since the early days of trading on forums or internet relay chat. Large exchanges sprung up and nowadays they've perfected the art of attracting newbies through demystifying the buying experience with seamless and quite frankly, mindless user interfaces. Over time, regulators pressured exchanges into collecting users' data to verify their personal credentials. Exchanges such as these, we'll call them verification exchanges, have custody of your funds and have tools at their disposal to track your identity linked funds on chain. The reader should already be aware of the advantages of self custody, a topic worthy of its own detailed exploration. The convenience of mainstream vexes such as 
Coinbase and Binance have effectively perverted end user expectations of private peer-to-peer -peer alternatives when buying Bitcoin. Consequently, they are disinclined to use alternatives despite the immeasurable benefits to be gained. To clarify, we are defining exchanges by their requirements for users to supply identifying information, not whether they're centralized or decentralized in nature. Centralized exchanges can operate privately, P2P, if they hold no information on their users and do not custody funds. Centralization doesn't have to sacrifice end-user privacy if the exchange only performs the role of a blind matchmaker and if shut down can simply be relaunched by cloning its open source repository. Therefore, the distinctive VEX label is more appropriate than incorrectly referring to all CEXs as having poor privacy. For full disclosure, the author contributes to the open source P2P exchange Robosats, but this article is not endorsing just one P2P exchange, rather it is an endorsement for use of any private P2P exchange. Anything is better than using VEXs. Note, in many jurisdictions, using a P2P service is no different than using eBay or Craigslist. It's your responsibility to know your jurisdiction's stance. Obviously, the problem with VEXs is the utter lack of privacy. Users are required to submit self-identifying information like a driver's license or passport that will perpetually link purchased Bitcoin to that user. To reiterate, a user's real name is forever associated with that Bitcoin and all downstream transactions. If they withdraw that Bitcoin from the identifying exchange and use mixing services, the public ledger can make this evident and authorities may associate that action with criminal activity regardless of the user's intent. On top of leaving a digital paper trail, their email, password, phone number, and fiat bank credentials can become exposed as bad actors can access this information through hacking or by disgruntled exchange employees leaking users' personal information. Or as evidenced by recent exchange collapses like FTXs, they risk losing their Bitcoin since they don't truly possess the private keys. Many buyers and sellers use these privacy invasive exchanges primarily because they wield vast liquidity in a slew of local currencies and their slick mobile apps make buying and selling Bitcoin a trivial task. What's more, they've built addictive casinos aimed at increasing user retention with every confetti filled dopamine inducing trade. Unfortunately, many of the owners and operators of VEXs rapidly advocate for adoption friendly regulations by collecting their users' customers' data under the guise of protecting honest users, but the collection of sensitive user data in the first place is ripe for exploitation by cyber criminals. The simple solution is to avoid DEXs altogether. Consider the second order effects of using and thereby supporting anti-privacy exchanges. How do you buy and sell Bitcoin? Well, how you buy and sell Bitcoin will have amplifying effects on those exchanges and the greater Bitcoin network. When using a VEX, you are amplifying the practice of invading privacy and giving credence to the normalization of it. Speaking with your wallet has never been more applicable than when you buy Bitcoin with your hard-earned fiat. If using a P2P exchange, <clears throat> then you're contributing Bitcoin or fiat liquidity to that platform and thus amplifying the immediately available liquidity so that more users can benefit from privacy-oriented exchanges rather than relying on VEXs. The result of supporting VEXs will restrict fiat on-ramps and lead to a failure of Bitcoin's core ideology as a permissionless P2P electronic cash system. On the other hand, supporting P2P exchanges will reinforce the permissionless nature of Bitcoin and create a more robust privacy network for anyone to freely use. 
The following sections look into expectations for a P2P exchange for some of the users who are accustomed to DEXs. In this author's experience, the biggest complaint from users of DEXs regarding P2P exchanges is the lack of immediately available liquidity for some currencies and fiat payment methods. Every P2P exchange launches with low liquidity and only grows if their user base grows. Such is the origin of any P2P exchange. They do not have sudden vast liquidity at the get-go, and without anyone bothering to contribute liquidity, P2P exchanges would cease to exist. Without a marketing budget, they can't really do anything besides bring in more users with word-of-mouth advertising. In the case of RoboSouts, we've seen that many new users will only check the order book at that specific moment and very often assume weak liquidity, and they do not realize that untaken orders expire in 24 hours and successful trades are not visible. The trade turnover is actually quite high and orders get taken relatively quickly. Interestingly, behind the apparent lack of liquidity is a highly liquid market. Thus, the distinction should be made between immediately available liquidity on DEXs and high turnover liquidity on P2P exchanges. In this same vein, DEXs make classic dollar cost averaging a breeze, while P2P exchanges usually take a little extra elbow grease. Rather fittingly, this could be seen as a comparison between high time preference stacking with BEXs and low time preference stacking with P2P exchanges. In short, P2P exchanges get better with more liquidity in users. Buying and selling Bitcoin in a private P2P exchange usually involves a premium. Users who are accustomed to the VEX lifestyle may hesitate paying above the Bitcoin to fiat market price for fear of getting fewer Satoshis for their fiat. Conversely, users who value privacy take no issue paying extra for their anonymous Bitcoin. In P2P markets, where there are imbalances between supply and demand, premiums are used on buy and sell orders to incentivize anonymous peers to provide liquidity to the marketplace. If you're buying Bitcoin in a currency or payment method that is inconvenient for the seller, then by raising your premium, you may attract someone willing to go out of their way for more Satoshis. You have to make it worth their time. If selling Bitcoin, you can gain more fiat in exchange for it when using P2P services versus using DEXs. From the seller's point of view, the order premium is an opportunity for profitable arbitrage that also incentivizes sellers to part ways with their desirable Bitcoin for undesirable fiat. From one perspective, the market rate on DEXs could be viewed as a discounted version of Bitcoin that will invade your privacy at the benefit of more Satoshis in your stack, whereas the market rate on P2P exchanges can be seen as the real Bitcoin market evaluation that users are paying to truly secure their wealth and protect their personal privacy. It should go without saying, <clears throat> but wanting to transact Bitcoin privately has absolutely nothing to do with criminal activity, like lawmakers so desperately preach. Rather, it is solely to protect yourself from criminal activity against your wealth and potentially your life. If you practice multi-sig because you take the $5 wrench attack seriously, then you should also transact Bitcoin privately. The idea that your life is in danger by exposing your identity may sound extreme, but it is not some far-fetched radical fantasy. Bitcoin bought privately will always carry a premium because the market will forever value it more than Bitcoin that is bought with the capability of exposing your personal finances. No exchange is perfect, and that applies to both VEXs and P2P exchanges. No matter how streamlined or foolproof the platform appears to be, Users can still run into trouble. When they do encounter issues, there's nothing more comforting than knowing a real human being 
is there to help. In contrast to your typical customer service employee, the volunteer developers and contributors are often more than willing to go out of their way to resolve problems and issues since they have more ambition and desire to keep users enjoying the platform. Moreover, P2P platforms are more likely to provide tailored solutions since problems that occur more often than not outside of the platform's control, like issues with a certain third-party wallet or lightning network limitations. In this author's observation, the response times, positive attitudes, and general helpfulness of P2P exchanges far exceeds that of VEXs, where where users resignedly gripe about their terrible and incompetent customer service departments. By exploring some of these warped expectations, hopefully readers will adjust theirs accordingly when using the variety of privacy-focused exchanges available. While ideally, expectations should not need to be adjusted, users need to recognize the plain realities when using smaller, lower-volume exchanges that focus on privacy over profit and operate on a relatively minuscule budget. BEXs such as Coinbase and Binance have had many years to establish their brands by building user trust for now, and with the help of crypto educators encouraging newbies to buy their first assortment of tokens and coins on verification exchanges because it's easy, or more probably because they were paid to shill those products. You likely bought your first Bitcoin on a VEX because you were told that it's easy or were not aware of the private alternatives. Likewise, you probably didn't find out about the disastrous implications of linking your real-life identity to your Bitcoin stack until far later into your journey down the rabbit hole. No need to fret. It's never too late to begin working towards a more secure and private future. Keep your Bitcoin bought on VEXs wholly separate from your private Bitcoin stack and stop giving VEXs your business. Ultimately, P2P exchanges will have to work incredibly hard to compete in the same league as VEXs, yet without peers liquefying the order books, there would be no private P2P exchanges at all. The best we can do is reason with users to value privacy and adjust their expectations when using P2P exchanges in lieu of high-volume privacy foregoing verification exchanges, so spread the word. Uh, So very interesting here, and um, you know, like I said, there are plenty of alternatives uh, plenty of P2P exchanges that you can use as an alternative to buy your Bitcoin and certainly might be worth experimenting with that a little bit and just sending it to your hardware wallet. Okay, next article is uh, January 21st, Cointelegraph, crypto to play a, quote, major role in UAE trade, foreign trade minister says. Crypto will play a major role in the United Arab Emirates' global trade moving forward, says the UAE's Minister of State for Foreign Trade, Fani Al-Zayudi. Speaking with Bloomberg on January 20th in Davos, Switzerland, where world leaders are currently gathered for the 2023 World Economic Forum, Al-Zayudi provided a host of updates regarding the UAE's trade partnerships and policies heading into 2023. Commenting on the crypto sector, The minister stated that crypto will play a major role for UAE trade going forward as he outlined that the most important thing is that we ensure global governance when it comes to cryptocurrencies and crypto companies. Al-Zayudi went on to suggest that as the UAE works on its crypto regulatory regime, the focus will be making the Gulf country a hub with crypto-friendly policies that also have sufficient protections in place. 
We started attracting some of the companies to the country with the aim that we'll build together the right governance and legal system which are needed. The comments from Al Ziyudi come just a week after the UAE cabinet introduced new regulation, which essentially ensures that entities engaging in crypto activities must secure a license and approval from the virtual asset regulatory authority. If companies fail to do so, they will face fines of up to $2.7 million under the new law. The move adds to the guiding principles for digital asset regulation and supervision that were published by the financial regulator of Abu Dhabi's global market-free economic zone in September. The principles outline a friendly stance towards crypto while also pledging to comply with international standards in anti-money laundering, combating the financing of terrorism, and supporting financial sanctions. The UAE's Minister of State and Artificial Intelligence and the Digital Economy, Omar Sultan Al-Olama, also appeared at the World Economic Forum as part of a crypto-focused panel on January 19th. Al-Olama noted that while the FTX debacle was a major concern, the UAE still wants to be a hub despite the whole ordeal. Them, crypto companies, calling the UAE home is definitely a positive thing, he said. The minister also distanced the UAE from assertions that its cities like Dubai tend to become key spots for disgraced crypto figures to flee to, arguing that bad actors don't have a nationality and don't have a destination. He did stress, however, that governments do need to work together to stop bad actors from going AWOL overseas. <clears throat> you will see them everywhere. You'll see them in the Bahamas. You'll see them in New York, London. And what we need to do as governments is to work together with the industry as well to ensure but if someone does something wrong, he can't move from one place to the other, he said. Moving on here, Bitcoin.com. Uh, this was just updated today. Bank of America says digital currencies appear inevitable. Bank of America's global research team published a report on global cryptocurrencies, digital assets, and central bank digital currencies earlier this week. The bank wrote, digital currencies appear inevitable. We view distributed ledgers and digital currencies such as CBDCs and stable coins as a natural evolution of today's monetary and payment systems. Our view is CBDCs that leverage distributed tech ledger technology have the potential to revolutionize global financial systems and may be the most significant technological advancement in the history of money, uh, except that they are gonna be programmed to monitor everything that you spend. <laughs> and uh, They're not really good for privacy. So we don't like CBDCs. The report explains that there are currently 114 central banks exploring CBDCs representing 58% of countries globally and over 95% of global GDP. It also notes that central bank digital currencies do not change the definition of money but will likely change how and when value is transferred over the next 15 years. According to Bank of America, CBDC issuances by central banks appear inevitable for three reasons. Firstly, they may increase efficiencies for cross-border and domestic payments and transfers. In addition, they may decrease central banks' risk of losing monetary control and increase financial inclusion. The Bank of America report adds that the private sector is critical for CBDC development and issuance, elaborating central banks and governments can't build new financial systems based on distributed ledger technology alone, 
and have indicated that they will leverage the private sector to drive digital asset innovation. We expect private sector beneficiaries to emerge in all phases of CBDC implementation. For example, the report notes the governments may award contracts to, to payments and consulting companies in exchange for expertise. Bank of America also pointed out some risks. CBDC issuance and adoption could also increase the frequency of bank runs if not properly designed, the bank warned, adding that during times of stress in the banking system, people could withdraw deposits and exchange them for CBDCs, given that there is no credit or liquidity risk if distributed with the direct and hybrid approaches, increasing financial stability risks. The report concludes, however, Central banks could mitigate this risk by introducing CBDC holding limits, either on a temporary or permanent basis. So again, this this if this isn't if this doesn't make you a little bit worried, then I'm not really sure, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, how to underscore the importance of this. But um, and there are two really models. There's there's kind of, I guess they call it the wholesale model and the retail model. Um, the retail model is really, you have an account directly with the central bank. And that essentially cuts the bank out of the middle. Um, and that does not seem to be the model that everybody's following. Um, they're following more of the wholesale model, which is that the central bank issues the you know central bank digital currency to banks and then you have uh, you, you as the end user has an account with the bank that has your central bank digital currency in it um, but the problem with central bank digital currencies is you know that uh, they have the ability to look into all your transactions. And because it's programmable, not only can they see what you buy, but um, it also uh, allows for them to program the currency. And I think they talked about that here just now that, you know, if uh, they can put limits on how much you spend and how much you deposit into the CBDC, how much you take out, and also what um, you buy. So, for example, I mean, and this is an example that, that comes up all the time, but, you know, if you've um, exceeded your carbon allowance for the for the month, uh, it might not allow you to buy a plane ticket, for example, or to fill up your car with gas or something like that. And, of course, that sounds crazy and like conspiracy theory, but, you know, if 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 you if you if you see social credit scores, climate crisis, hysteria, and central bank digital currencies sort of merging together, you can see how uh, you know governments could um, use money, central bank digital currencies, to enforce policy. Um, another example is like taxes. You know. Um, they could just take your taxes right out of your account um, and you wouldn't even have to file a return. How easy would that be? So uh, I think keeping an eye on the development of central bank digital currencies is, is really, really important. Um, I think Bitcoin offers an alternative because it's not run by anybody. 
it's just code and um, nobody's going to tell you you know what you can or can't buy with bitcoin or who you can or can't send it to um but central bank digital currencies if they are indeed inevitable we're going to have to watch very very carefully and especially the privacy elements and uh, the level of control uh, over how those funds are are used because um, this could be you know uh, you know sounds great and all the uh, promotional people like including the prime minister of uh, the UK who, who did a you know promo piece on how wonderful central bank digital currencies are going to be uh, that's not the whole story. So um, we just need to be very, very skeptical and, and push back on central bank digital currencies, I think. Um, and we already have digital money. I mean, let's face it, you know, uh, you know, your bank account, the money goes in from your employer, you, you pay it out using your debit card or some other payment method. I mean, I rarely write checks anymore. So, um, you know, we already have digital currency. We don't, we don't need central bank digital currencies. So just watch that narrative. And uh, finishing up with uh, this this uh, one here. This was posted on January 20th, Crypto News. Here he goes again. Bitcoin is hyped up fraud, says JP Morgan's Jamie Dimon. But blockchain is, quote, deployable. Despite the ongoing challenges in the cryptocurrency market, enthusiasts of digital assets are convinced that the future is bright for the sector. Recently, the value of Bitcoin has shown signs of resurgence with a notable hike in its price over the past few weeks following a difficult start to 2023. But not everyone holds the same positive outlook, including the CEO of JP Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon, at a recent interview at the World Economic Forum with CNBC. He made harsh public statements on his perspective of Bitcoin and the crypto industry. Uh, and so this here's a quote. I think that it is a waste of time and why you guys waste any breath on it is beyond me, said Diamond in the interview on the sidelines of the WEF. Bitcoin itself is a hyped up fraud. It's a pet rock. This is not the first time Diamond has publicly shared his skepticism towards the crypto industry. He has been vocal about his negative views on digital assets since 2017 when he first referred to Bitcoin as a quote fraud. After the downfall of the once second largest crypto exchange, FTX, last year, he argued that the entire crypto industry is a complete sideshow. Some have, have presented counterarguments to Diamond's statements, including CNBC anchor Joe Kernan, who challenged Diamond's assertions during the interview. Kernan argued that Bitcoin serves as a store of value and is immutable and scarce, citing the protocol of the cryptocurrency that limits the number of coins to 21 million. This is where it gets funny. In response, Diamond quipped, how do you know it's going to stop at 21 million? Well, maybe it's going to get to 21 million and Bitcoin's mysterious founder, Satoshi's picture, is going to come up and laugh at you all. <laughs> Which, again, uh, I saw a lot of uh, feedback on that online. And, you know, it's, it's in the code. And uh, the only way to change the code is to get everybody running a node to agree to change the code. And no one running a node is going to agree to increasing the supply of Bitcoin. So, but, you know, again, either he doesn't understand or he's really threatened by this and he's trying to change the narrative to get people to uh, 
question whether or not Bitcoin's really what it is. So despite these opposing views, the article goes on, it's worth noting that while Diamond may not believe in the potential of cryptocurrencies, he recognizes the value of the blockchain technology that they're built on. During the same interview, he stated that blockchain is a technology ledger system that we use to move information. We've used it to do overnight repo, intraday repo. We've used it to move money, right? So that's a technology ledger that we think will be deployable. Indeed, JP Morgan has been investing in blockchain technology since 2017 when the bank participated in creating an open source blockchain initiative called the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. The company also uses its own cryptocurrency, the JPM coin, to execute intraday repurchase agreements. However, Diamond also mentioned that the financial industry has been discussing the use of blockchain technology for 12 years, and in his opinion, very little has been done in terms of the implementation. And while that's simple, that's because the only real use case for blockchain technology is Bitcoin, and everything else is just replicating things that we already have. Many in the crypto community took to Twitter after the interview to criticize Diamond's view, including popular crypto figure and podcaster Peter McCormick, who wrote in a Twitter post as JP Morgan CEO Jamie Diamond calls Bitcoin a hyped up fraud. Let's not forget that JP Morgan paid $2.6 billion for their role in the Madoff fraud, the largest Ponzi scheme in history. Bernie Madoff was able to launder billions of dollars through JP Morgan true statement. Others made fun of Diamond's lack of understanding of open source code, noting that it's quite easy to see that no shady scenarios could play out with Bitcoin, such as more than 21 million coins being created. How do you know it ends at 21 million? Well, Jamie, you see it's in the code. <laughs> the code is open source, fully transparent. If you want to change the 21 million, you need to consensus or else it would hard fork, one Twitter user responded. Okay. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. Uh, thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please like and leave a comment. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. You can also follow my Substack at bitcoinfortress.substack.com. And you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Nick Reichert. Uh, so I will talk to you all next week. Have a great week. Bye-bye.